At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the voice mode edition. It's Friday, April 8th, and I'm Mariam Ibrahim, your Press Gallery host and a legislature reporter for the Journal. MLAs were back in Edmonton this week for the return of the legislature session, and well, the week did not disappoint. Joining me to give their input, yes, in voice mode, are Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Good morning. And health reporter Keith Gerine. Hello. A leaked resignation letter from former AHS CEO Vicky Kaminsky made waves this week because, contrary to her assertions last fall that she was leaving for personal reasons, it actually reveals she left over claims of political meddling at the Provincial Health Authority by Health Minister Sarah Hoffman. Why does this all feel like deja vu? We'll discuss the developments and the controversial history clouding AHS governance. Then, an incredible and somewhat disturbing story from our colleagues over at the Canadian Press, who filed a story this week about a man facing charges after he allegedly phoned Environment Minister Shannon Phillips' office and made threats because he disagrees with government policy. But first, if you were watching the evening newscast last night, or just tuned in on social media, you no doubt saw Premier Rachel Notley's televised address in which she tried to reassure Albertans her government is doing everything it can to create jobs and lift the economy out of its slump. Graham, what did Notley have to say to Albertans last night? I think she said her government is doing everything it can to create jobs and lift the economy <laughs> out of the slump. <laughs> and you. how much did that cost? <laughs> $85,000. It's interesting, you know, when NDP was in opposition, you would call these addresses from the Premier a taxpayer-funded infomercial. And of course, the thing is, they, are, they can be quite helpful to the government. Because the government's been trying to get this message out, and it hasn't always been very successful with the yelling of the opposition and the harping of the news media. Uh, you know, they're trying to say, look, the price of oil has gone down. How much? Well, they got graph and chart, 90% in the last year. Um, and also they're talking about government spending has been really erratic under the PCs. We're not spending a lot in terms of the increases and see the little graph and charts showing that, in fact, spending is not out of control under the NDP. This is them getting ahead of next week's budget when they know they won't have a spotlight. Well, they have a spotlight on them, but last night you just had the premier on stage, so to speak, on her own with nobody catcalling her and no media doing analysis while she's trying to talk. So this is the well, government. I don't know. If you were looking at Twitter, there was a <laughs> whole <laughs> <laughs> Well, there is that. But if you do have the government now trying to use this as getting its message out ahead of bad news budget coming up. And they've done that before under the PCs. It's a tried and true method to, to try and get their message out. Will it work? Eh, time will tell. So then what does that mean about the fact that they need to turn to this, you know, method to get their, their message out? I think it's because it hasn't been getting out. I guess in their minds, they're having a hard time getting that message out clearly to people in the province. Because people don't, believe it or not, people don't follow provincial politics. What? I know. No. As closely as we do. It's you mean everyone isn't tuning into yeah. this podcast well, like clockwork every Friday? I'm surprised we're oh, three, three million 
four wow. million people listening in each week. But this is because they're trying to get the message out. So even though it's not news to us, there was nothing in that speech I saw that was actually newsworthy, including the $10 billion deficit. Um, but this is their way of trying to get people engaged by getting the message out clearly and avoiding the news media and avoiding the opposition. You know, this is not exactly a new strategy. William Aberhart used to do this really well on the radio because right. he was a radio broadcaster. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I remember a famous one that Peter Lawhey did from the bunker that sort of put Alberta on a war footing, uh, which resonated in this incredible way about the National Energy Program. Uh, Klein did these very well because he was a TV guy. But Stelmack was awful because he was so wooden and you know he was a wonderful natural communicator one-on-one -on -one, terrible on television so the problem is that this is not new every government going back to social credit has been doing this uh the issue is does it still work in a world in which people don't watch the six o'clock supper hour news i'm not sure what the political value is of buying time on the six o'clock supper hour news i mean once upon a time 20 years ago that was actually a really effective way to reach a broad public audience. I don't know that it is anymore. Frankly, if you want to reach people, I'm not sure that YouTube isn't a better way than trying to corral people at supper time in, where, you know, with all due respect to our friends at CTV, their numbers are not what they were. The other problem, though, is that this was really badly done. I was just thunderstruck because when Notley did commercials during the election, when she's made speeches, she's a wonderful natural performer. She looked like she was a drugged hostage last night. She was so low energy. The lighting was terrible. The makeup was terrible. The editing was terrible. And I know it may sound frivolous or even sexist to comment on those things, but I would have commented if Stelmack's makeup had been that bad too. The problem is if you're going to do television, you have to do television. I didn't think the messaging was bad. The medium was no help to Rachel Notley at all. Mm. It, it did It did feel a little bit flat, I think, to oh, me. Oh, it is flat. Yeah. And also the weird thing about the camera angle, she was talking right to the, the camera, yeah. and then it would cut a side angle, and she was still at that point facing away from the yeah, camera. Yeah, it was... <laughs> It was it was strange. I think there I was just effort like to say, there. Sean Butts, our videographer, would never make a video <laughs> that track. Nope, nope, nope. Wow. So we know how Paula feels about it, <laughs> Keith. Uh, they've, you know, Graham has already mentioned the fact that there wasn't really a lot of uh, news to that right. message, and uh, obviously, you and I, as people who follow uh, sort of provincial politics, you would have recognized that. Maybe the average person didn't, but. We're still the people reporting the message. Should sure. she have given Albertans something more to grab onto in that address? Well, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more. I mean, when you book 15 minutes uh, on two major networks uh, at primetime hours, yeah, I kind of was hoping for kind of a bigger policy announcement or some more news in there. Uh, something worthy of you know Albertans taking the 15 minutes out of their out of their uh, their day out of their evening. Uh, now, I, I, there are rules, of course, they, you know, aren't allowed to discuss details of the budget ahead of time. And so they may have felt that they couldn't have gone down that road too far. Uh, and of course, the, you know, as, as others have mentioned, uh, most Albertans don't know a lot of this stuff. They probably heard it in bits and pieces. And some of those bits and pieces have probably come from the opposition, not painted in the most flattering light. 
And so this was their opportunity to kind of put it all together in one package for people. But as Paula said, it came across really, really flat. It'd be interesting to see what, what the actual numbers were. You mentioned, you know, that maybe it's not the best way to reach people. To me, it's still, it becomes a focus of the media's attention. We wrote about it this morning. I think it'd be interesting to see what the actual numbers were for the audience, uh, the audience numbers for the It's uh, interesting, because certainly when I was being cynical about this on Twitter and Facebook, as I was last night. You cynical? Me cynical. But when I was... When I was um, trash-talking the production values of the video last night, I certainly got a lot of pushback from Rachel Notley supporters and NDP supporters saying, you know, that this was a great message and that I was being, you know, a mean girl. I think the strategy here is not a bad one. I've been saying for weeks that Notley needs to reach out to people and demonstrate that she understands the pain and the fear that Albertans who've lost their job are feeling. And I think she did that effectively last night. I think the other real strategic purpose of that message was to lower expectations within her own base about the budget. I mean, that was a clear message to NDP supporters that, look, you know, the kinds of social investments you might have been hoping for, the kinds of salary increases for the public sector you might have been hoping for, that is not going to be happening. And that was a really important message for her to send out in code to her base so that she doesn't end up in that Bob Ray situation where, you know, NDP supporters are outraged by the budget because it doesn't spend as much as they were hoping. She laid it out pretty plainly yeah. that, you know, that this is not a budget that's going to be full of, you know, full of candies and presents for people. So obviously there were multiple audiences here, and I think she was trying to reach uh, different groups of, of people at different times. One uh, that kind of stood out to me was a broader audience. I think there's there's always quite a bit of national interest whenever Rachel Notley stands up to say something like this, and it always sort of surprises me. But one of those things that she talked about last night was pipelines, and it seemed to me that she was really trying to prove her her pipeline cred, uh, I guess, and and really spoke directly to to Ottawa and to to the federal government, saying we need a yes. Um, you know, do you think that message was enough, Graham? Well, this was not a message to Ottawa. It's a message to people back in Alberta that she was talking to Ottawa. Right? Ottawa's not going to be watching. Oh, she talked to us. Um, no, you don't think so. No, they I don't think they so. Didn't tune in last I night? don't think uh, Justin Trudeau was there <laughs> saying, "Hey, she's talking to me." This was uh, her trying to convince people in Alberta that she's actually doing something on the pipeline front. The problem is they're having is that Alberta has limited influence over the pipelines. It's a federal decision. So what she wants people to say is, "Oh, I saw Rachel Notley on TV last night uh, saying that she's going to get tough with Ottawa and is asking for help in getting pipelines built." This is a refrain that they have right now. They can't affect the price of oil. All they can do is try and say, we're going to try and move pipelines, get pipelines built. And so far, it's, it's, she's taken a different tact, of course, than the Conservatives, and we'll see if it's going to actually going to work. We don't know. This is going to take time, and the problem is this government doesn't have a lot of time when it comes to the price of oil recovering and them getting a, a pipeline approved before the next election. Yeah, the and next the, election. the other thing that's really important to remember is that the Federal New Democratic Convention is in Edmonton this weekend, and they have a, a, they have a serious optics problem because, you know, the, the New Democrat Convention, one of the things they're going to be discussing is sort of a resolution to leave the oil in the ground. And Thomas Mulcair, most unhelpfully, from Notley's perspective, I think, said this week that, you know, he'd be open to the idea of leaving the oil in the ground. That is not a message that... Rachel Notley, Sarah Hoffman, Darren Billis, and the rest of them can afford for Albertans to think is New Democrat policy. 
Oh, well, I wanted. I do want to switch gears right now uh, to to that story uh, that our colleague Dean Bennett at the Canadian Press filed on Thursday. According to a statement filed with Edmonton Police last week, a man allegedly phoned Shannon Phillips' office and threatened to quote shoot us all. Uh, that's according to the police statement over the his disagreement uh, with the carbon tax. Um, now I'm going to read a part of Dean's interview with the man who was facing charges in this case, Michael Enright. No, I didn't say that. I don't have a gun. I don't have ammunition. I didn't say that at all. Enright said he was just driving and listening to talk radio host Danielle Smith, former opposition Wild Rose leader in the legislature when he called Phillips office. I'm listening to Danielle Smith talking just one thing after another about whatchamacallit, the economy and the coal. I've got friends who are losing their jobs and I phoned in, he said. I didn't mean to get upset and I did not threaten anybody at all. All I said was that if they keep pushing people, people are going to get guns and they are going to revolt. I was talking globally, not specifically. Now, of course, Mr. Enright has yet to have his day in court. So leaving leaving that case aside for a minute, Paula, have there been cases where threats actually have been made against Alberta politicians over things like government policy? Yeah, I, I seem to be the, the in-house historian today. I mean, I remember back in 2008, I think it would have been, uh, when a local farmer who was uh, upset about Ed Stelmack's policies about unions, um, he was also drunk at the time, phoned the premier's office and got into an argument with the receptionist and threatened to kill Stelmax cattle and rip down his fences and uh, and made threats against the premier too. Again, it was not, you know, it was not like a specific threat. It was a call of an angry person who had been drinking. Um, but police took that case very seriously and charges were laid and there was a conviction. It's a bit like making jokes about bombs in the airport security line. There's a kind of level of discourse that is really not very advisable when calling up public figures. Graham, there were also examples back when the Bill 6 sort of protests were at their height. And even Brian Jean, I think, had to put out a statement on his Facebook page. If I recall correctly, it was on his Facebook page, uh, sort of calling on people to tone down their their, their rhetoric. Uh, what does that say just about about the state of discourse right now? I think it's, well, the, we're in a recession. The price of oil has, has gone down, as we saw in the Premier's speech <laughs> of Thursday night. 90%, I believe, is the figure she used. So, so, the, so <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a full-on recession here. It's going to get worse, according to the experts, before it gets better. People are frustrated. People are losing their jobs. And the, you also have this political um, argument by the opposition that the NDP is making things worse by bringing in a carbon tax, by raising tax, uh, taxes on corporations, by raising the minimum wage. So you've got things are tough, people are losing their jobs, and the opposition is saying the government is actually making it worse. And I think that plays into people's frustrations. And they're th- so th- where people are acting out their frustrations. Now, also, I think social media has, is a factor here as well. People c- before, people who may sit, like 20 years ago, sit in their basement and grumble about this, all of a sudden they can get online and tweet and they, they, they got this, this critical mass can develop with like-minded people who are very angry, can vent their anger, and then the, the echo chamber that, it, that is social media, they hear their, their thoughts back from other people. It just tends to build up, and people get out, of, get out of control. Their anger gets out of control on social media. They think, they think that there's no repercussions to what they're saying, but in fact, there can be real-life repercussions to what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, and I think Graham's right. It's that social validation that amps things up and sort of creates that exponential growth in fury. 
it is a fact of life that people in the public eye are going to receive angry phone calls from people who express themselves in extremely intemperate ways. Um, you know, I had a person who wrote into me a number of years ago and said he was going to track me down and kill me because of my support for anti-smoking bylaws. So this is oh. a few years ago. And so, you know, uh, I was concerned enough by the way this was phrased because it was quite personal about the tracking me down part um, that, you know, I gave the copy of this email to an editor who called the police and the police called the man. And, you know, the, the upshot was that people who are threatening to kill you don't generally sign their names and provide their phone numbers. Yes. So it can be very difficult, I think, for people who are working in the police and in the sheriff's office to differentiate between whack jobs who are just very, very angry and people who really are credible threats. If you are angry and call to vent in a stupid way, you are going to waste a lot of people's time when they are actually trying to worry about uh, legitimate security concerns. I want to sort of go back to the story uh, you know, that we were talking about at the top of this segment. Keith, I don't know about you, but the interview that Dean Bennett landed for this story really blew me away. I, I'm interested in your in your take and your read of this uh, this story. Well, I sort of sort of felt the same way. Yes and no, a little bit. I mean, it's not often that you get a story where uh, the defendant, somebody facing criminal charges, actually talks to the media. That is usually a really bad defense strategy, <laughs> right? So somebody's lawyer is not happy. Yeah. So in, in that sense that, that he that he talked to Dean uh, and provided all this detail of what happened. I mean, that that's sort of incredible. We don't get that very often. Yeah. Um, the level of detail the, the the Danielle Smith radio, like the, all of that part just sort of really painted a picture. You could really see that situation happening. Yeah. And it, it does sort of provide some insight into, you know, who makes these calls, how they happen. At the end of the day, though, I'm not sure how meaningful it is. I mean, it it does come across as a, a you know, a guy who um, probably has a short temper and, and just something set him off. And by, I think by his own admission, made a made a dumb call and said some stupid things to a minister's office. At the end of the day, I'm not sure how meaningful that really is. It's it's a story of uh, a small criminal matter that I think is going to go away in the end. But uh, hopefully, people reading the story may pay attention and go, oh, this does have real life consequences. Maybe the next time I get the temptation to vent like this, I won't do it. But he, hey, he said he's going to send Shannon Phillips office staff flowers. Oh, yeah. So that's going to make it all cool. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I think the flowers won't won't work. Moving on to the subject that we took our inspiration for our, our episode name from this week. And that's the controversy swirling around uh, former AHS CEO Vicki Kaminsky's leaked resignation letter have a leaked resignation letter. Um, Keith Kaminsky resigned last fall, and at that time she said it was for personal reasons. But this letter, which was leaked to the investigative team at CBC Edmonton, paints quite a different picture. It does, yeah. So I, I think the, the biggest takeaway from the letter is that uh, Kaminsky expressed that she felt very neutered in her job by the NDP government that uh, you know all the hard work she and her, her team put in to come up with solutions to big problems facing the health system that the government uh, micromanaged second-guessed and ultimately stopped a lot of what she wanted to do um, for what she believes are purely ideological reasons uh, and she says that for her own reputation that she had to leave so it, it was uh, it was interesting you don't get these kind of comments very often from outgoing leaders although I suspect 
a lot of former health leaders felt the same way. We just didn't hear about it. Well, we sure heard about it from yeah, Stephen Steve Duckett. Duckett. Yeah. Well, Steve, yeah. Steve, yes. Stephen Duckett yeah. said almost, you know, precisely the same things. Uh, a reminder to our listeners that Stephen Duckett is the man with the cookie. That's right. And again, I am the resident historian because I'm older than dirt, but not older than Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, okay. <laughs> when did this turn into an attack, Graham? It's just because uh, we love podcast, you, Graham. Yeah. Well, listen, listen. There were some very specific <clears throat> accusations <laughs> contained in that in that letter, and Health Minister Sarah Hoffman responded by saying, "You know what? What one calls political meddling, she calls governing." And this is a you know a health authority with a very big budget. Graham, uh, you, you see, you seem to agree. Yeah, it's a fourteen billion dollar budget. It's a huge portion. This is the AHS budget, a huge portion of the overall provincial budget. We have, over the years, the PCs have amalgamated everything to, into one board, into the AHS. So the government has to keep an eye on things. And we've seen, I thought it was rich having the PCs accuse the NDP of political interference <laughs> in the AHS. The PCs fired the board. A few years ago. When the board refused to do an illegal thing. Exactly. It was over, I guess it was over uh, bonuses to yeah. executives in AHS. And the board said, we are legally bound to give them out. The government said, you will not do that. So we're legally bound. And so the government fired the board. This was under Redford. Yeah, um, when, so when Fred Horn was minister. Fred Horn, that's right. Yeah. So, so the, the PCs, it's rich having them accuse uh, the, the uh, NDP of political interference. But also, um, a couple of things. Um, we had... Last year, last fall, the Minister of Health, Sarah Hoffman, saying, look, the buck stops with me. Like she made a real effort to, to try and end this fiction of the AHS being an independent body of government. She's saying the buck stops with me. In fact, she put Richard Discerny, the top civil servant in the province, on the board of directors of the AHS to, to let the board know as well, this is, like, you're working for, for the minister here. Um, also, I guess, un undermining Kaminsky's message this week and this letter that was leaked, was um, the mayor of Calgary came out, Nancy came out and said, Hoffman is completely right on this. Like Hoffman, like the, the city council, I guess, was trying to get Kaminsky and the AHS board to listen. Um, and this, to is, was, this was related to ambulance dispatch. Yeah, that's right, right. the 9-11 yeah. call center. So um, you had <coughs> the city asking Kaminsky, look, can you listen to our concerns? And according to Nancy, she basically rejected their concerns. So they went to the province, talked to Hoffman, and said, I will, I will in intervene on your behalf because I'm the minister. So you, ha you had this, I think, message from Kaminsky that didn't seem to hold much water when you start looking at it in terms of the ideology of the NDP. It's a different government. Like they are more hands-on. And the fact that the PCs, to me, are being completely hi hypocritical on this issue, and you have people like Nancy who said, the government, the Hoffman was right, and also Keith talked to some former ministers yeah. uh, on, on the same issue. It seemed to back up what Hoffman was doing as opposed to what Kaminsky was saying. Yeah, you know, it, it is an interesting quandary because the, under Stelmack and Leipert, uh, when when Ron Leipert was health minister, they set up this system, as Graham says, where everybody was it was one giant health board. And they did that in part because Stelmack was really angry because in that election, various health boards in Calgary uh, in particular were perceived as attacking Stelmack. So he figured he would put them all in one and they'd be easier to manage. It didn't work out so well because when they're all in one, they become this giant center of power and money. And it's very, very difficult for ministers to say, okay, well, you go be independent at arm's length over there when all of the backsplash, when people are angry, comes back to the government, which is ultimately accountable. So 
this creates problems. And it all depends on what your own ideological perspective is. When Leipert was health minister, for example, he micromanaged to such an extent that he canceled a very particular uh, syphilis education program, basically on the grounds that he thought people who got syphilis were kind of squicky and sort of deserved it. Um, and this was at a time when babies were dying because of syphilis. And Leipert, the health minister, went in and said, that particular education campaign, you can't do. Well, I mean, that's micromanaging at an incredible level, and it was very, very destructive and really put people's lives at risk. Conversely, when Jean Swazdesky was health minister, he micromanaged and overturned a decision by Stephen Duckett, who wanted to close down Alberta Hospital Edmonton, and Swazdesky stepped in and, and saved Alberta Hospital, although not to the extent of giving them more money to operate. And in that case, I cheered because <laughs> I happened to agree with Swazdesky and disagree with Duckett's strategy. But, but that makes me a hypocrite, too. I mean, either you're going to say we have a system where Alberta Health Services has the delegated authority to do these things, or we don't. And, and so I, I'm not sure that the situation with the current structure is soluble because you are always going to have people at loggerheads. In this particular instance, you throw in the fact that the new Deputy Minister of Health, Carl Amrine, I think I referred to him once as a human steamroller or a human bulldozer. I mean, he's a very powerful guy who wants his own way. And I can imagine that when he and Kaminsky butted heads, it got pretty ugly. And that's got nothing to do with ideology. That's entirely due to the personalities of the people involved. So, so do we think that voice mode was just the chance for them to really... Yeah, because that's it. I mean, it, that's Amrine's phrase. Amrine, you know, Kaminsky alleged that when Amrine wanted to be secretive about things, he said, let's not have an email trail. Let's discuss things in voice mode. Frankly, I'm surprised more political people don't do that more often. I am inevitably astonished when people get FOIPs at the sorts of things that people think are prudent to stick in emails that are part of the public record. You know, so, so Kaminsky made it sound very sinister. I would like to encourage everyone in government and any public authority <laughs> to continue to write everything by email. <laughs> Just yeah. putting that out there. That's right. Keith, Keith I want to bring you into this. So, sure. I mean, obviously, we, we, we've heard, you know, the Paula discusses the, the sort of problems that seem to just be built into this structure right are there alternatives you know it, it's it's tough to say I mean we're in a we're in a universal public health care system right here and and the government is ultimately responsible for spending those funds um, and, and so you have this weird dichotomy where they governments have assigned health experts health administrators to kind of deliver the services but when the public hates what they do the abuse comes back to the political arm, right? And so it, you do have this weird tension about, uh, you know, who's ultimately responsible and who should be left alone. And I do understand, you know, health experts like Kaminsky probably feel that they know best and would like to be left alone more. But it's just not reality. As Graham says, you know, this is 45% of the provincial budget. It, it's $14 billion a year. Uh, so, you know, the folks that I talked to yesterday, former board member Ken Hughes, uh, a former health executive, uh, Duncan Campbell, they both said, look, if you are in that position, if you are a health minister charged to run a health service, you are going to have to expect a certain level of political intervention. And the next person they hire for that job is going to have to be made very aware of that at the start, that they are working for the minister. And it does seem like Kaminsky was under some sort of impression that she was going to have more autonomy than than she, she did. Well, obviously, she was hired under a different government, and maybe things were operating slightly differently under the previous health minister. Was that Mandel most recently? Well, it was Fred Horn and then Mandel. Right. Yeah. 
But it's fascinating, right? I mean, one of the things that Sarah Hoffman said is that she had no idea about this resignation letter, that she didn't know about it until the CBC showed it to her, which I found surprising. Is that strange? It, it is. You think the minister, I think she was saying to us in the media, look, you know, that was the AHS doing the, the, the AHS thing, and it dealt with um, a, a personnel matter, you know, it was private. But hold on for a second. You're the minister who said the buck stops with me. Yeah. So there's a mixed message there that here's, here's Sarah Hoffman saying, I'm in charge of the buck stops with me. But when it comes to these really um, uh, difficult personnel matters dealing with the, the CEO of AHS, I didn't really want to know about that. Like, But point. you would think that the health minister would want to, like, I don't know, it's just I, I a, an exit weird. interview of sorts to I, find out about why well, the CEO I, I, had I decided to leave strange. for so-called personal reasons. But clearly the letter was written. I mean, the letter is... I mean, to call it passive-aggressive isn't probably quite fair because it's more aggressive it than it is like passive. It felt like it was written from Sarah was, Hoffman's it was, eyes. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It is a it is a Dear John letter to Sarah Hoffman. Uh, and So maybe someone was protecting Sarah Hoffman by not showing it yeah, to may, her? Yeah, maybe politically. I mean, maybe that's Amrine's job to be the firewall between the mm-hmm. administration and, and the political Yeah, side. I would agree. I would agree. If, in fact, Hoffman did not see, I think you're right, Paula, that this is the deputy minister saying, okay, fine. Let's, let's not let the ministers see this. Then that way she can say, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, but if I'm Hoffman. That was Hoffman, a very good shrug over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, I'm, if I'm Hoffman, though, I, I would want to see that. That that's it. I would be telling Amrine that I, I need to see that. Stop blocking me from, yeah. from receiving So, so the question is, um, in, with all respect to Charles Resnell and Jenny Russell of the CBC who got this leak, the thing I most want to know is where'd they get it? <laughs> You know, well, Paul, <laughs> I think you well know that they can't tell you that. I know, but I, I, I can still want to know, even if I can't. Yes, yes, that's true. Nature, that's our nature. All right, we're going to have to leave it there this week. There's a great discussion. Of course, before we end the episode, we want to get some good stuff from the gallery when our pan- panelists share with you their favorite read, watch, or listen of the week. Doesn't have to be political, but usually it is. Paula, what do you have? I have the new political thriller from Todd Babiak, Son of France, which is a sequel to Come Barbarians, his uh, his sort of breakout thriller from a couple of years ago. Uh, Son of France takes us back into the political intrigue of uh, French politics in the 1990s as the rise of the National Front and uh, the rise of tensions between the Muslim community in France and uh, the non-Muslim community in France. It is very timely given what's going on in the world today. So in case you're listening to this on Friday afternoon, Friday evening at 7.30, I will be at the St. Albert Public Library tonight interviewing Todd Babiak about his book on the stage. I'll ask him my questions, then you can ask him your questions. Uh, if you can't come to that, you should read the book because it's it's dark and gripping and noir. And in this book, no one is actually skinned alive as they were in the last one, uh, but it's still pretty darn violent. Okay, uh, Keith, what do you have? <laughs> Follow that. Go. Uh, not, not quite at that level, but uh, at, in reading the story about the alleged threats made to Shannon Phillips' office, I, I thought to myself, of all the ministers uh, to go after, uh, Shannon Phillips is probably the one who's going to be least intimidated. She's known for having sort of a real uh, tough personality, and it re- I recalled a story, that uh, a profile of Shannon Phillips that was done by our, our former colleague Jason Markasoff, who now works at McLean's, called Shannon Phillips, Alberta's Minister of Hard Hits. And the the big photo on there is of her doing roller derby and looking quite intense as she's doing so. So it's a good read. Graham, what about you? Uh, On the lighter side, from the New Yorker this week, um, I'll just give you the the title 
It's a bit of satire. It's Donald Trump performs Shakespeare's soliloquies. <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, but Graham, another Donald Trump recommendation? Because I'm, I'm obsessed with what's happening in the U.S. So you got uh, the soliloquies from Hamlet, Julius Caesar, uh, Romeo and Juliet, and Macbeth. And the writer has written them as if Trump is in Trump speak. <laughs> it is laugh out loud fun. Uh, all right, that that's a good that's a good Friday read. Um, okay, well, mine is uh, from last week. I watched with uh, interest uh, Peter Mansbridge's uh, interview of Marie Hanane, uh, Gian Gomeshi's lawyer, and then I read uh, with uh, interest this piece in Chatelaine um, that came out a few days later called uh, "Peter Mansbridge Botched His Interview with Marie Hanane." by Leah McLaren, uh, and that was in uh, Chatelaine on March 31st. Just a really good analysis of, of this interview by Mansbridge. Um, I found it disappointing. Um, I don't know if other people did, but I, I think uh, McLaren does a really good job of sort of uh, providing some analysis into that. Well, thanks very much, everybody. We'll be sure to post those links online, and that's a wrap on this week's episode of The Press Gallery. You can find this episode and an archive of past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com opinion. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and via TuneIn Radio. Subscribe and a fresh edition of the Press Gallery will be delivered right to you. Thanks to Paula, Keith, and Graham, along with Sean Butts, our videographer this week. And of He's course... much better than Rachel Blotney's videographer. <laughs> <laughs> one more time, Paula, one more time. <laughs> and of course, thank you all for listening. I'm Miriam Ibrahim. We'll be back next week. So will Paula's opinions in the Press Gallery. <laughs>